Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and in this episode, I talk with Robin Thurston, the CEO of Outside, the largest media company in the outdoor space, I believe by orders of magnitude. We discuss Robin's entrepreneurial background, building Map My Run into the largest running community in the world, talk about the state of connected fitness, putting a price tag on running-related and other outdoor media content, the Outerverse, and how Robin thinks about preserving the authenticity of acquired brands like FastestKnownTime.com. Before we get started, this episode is brought to you by Inside Tracker. This company is awesome. You get your blood drawn, you answer a few lifestyle questions, you upload the data, and they analyze the results and they provide an action plan, the most accurate, personalized recommendations about where you can improve when it comes to eating and supplementation in order to solve the critical diet part of the training equation. I like to think of it as having your own personalized data-driven nutritionist in an app. So to take action, go to insidetracker.com backslash single track. Using that link will take 20% off your next order on their website. This episode is also sponsored by Kodiak Cakes and Gnarly Nutrition. Uh, to get 15% off your next purchase on Kodiak site, use single track 15. And to get 20% off your next order on Gnarly's site, use single track 20 at checkout. With that, let's get started. All right, Robin Thurston, it is a pleasure to have you on the Single Track Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So the way I see it, outside media is without a doubt the biggest media company in our space, I think by orders of magnitude. And I'm really excited to talk about what you have in the works for my community in particular, which is the trail and ultra running world. But uh, I do want to touch on a few things before that. I know just from going back on interviews you've done in the past that you were at the forefront of what we'll call the connected fitness movement back in the mid 2000s. And I'm wondering just to set the table here, can you go into detail about what that was like and maybe start with like the genesis of Map My Run, for example? Yeah. Um, so I've been in and around uh, cycling and, and endurance sports really my whole life. Um, you know, started bike racing when I was like eight, nine years old. Um, grew up in Colorado, fortunately, cause we had, um, the Red Zinger mini classic in the eighties, which was like a huge deal for kids my age at that time. And, uh, you know, just got lucky in that the environment in Colorado was very much one, um, that sort of helped grow young cyclists into, you know, sort of thinking about it from a professional cycling career. Um, and, uh, you know, so that was, that was fortunate. You know, I, I went to Europe. I raced for a few years. I, I, I always say that I was a good cyclist. I wasn't a great cyclist. And so my reality set in by 94 and I had a bad crash. I went through the back windshield of a team car at about 40 miles an hour, no helmets. So that reality set in too. Um, but when I got back to the States, I, you know, I, I studied finance and I was fortunate enough to get a job at Reuters and, um, well, the company that I was working for got purchased by Reuters. And then we started building some direct to consumer subscriptions using credit cards in the late nineties. I was part of the Reuters.com team launch, um, in the early two thousands and sort of learned the ad business and sort of about, you know, product and digital product a lot more even in the early two thousands. And then, um, you know, I was on a cycling trip in, in 2005 and, um, somebody at dinner just said something really funny. We were in Switzerland near where I lived and they said, oh, it'd be cool if I like come back to Switzerland and know the roads, you know, without you being here. And I was like, you know, there's travel books, but there's no way for me to actually create a route and then like send it to you, Finn, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that kicked off the whole idea for Matt, my, my partner, Kevin Callahan actually now works with outside now too. So the, my partner in Matt, my has come back to join me at outside and is running some of our uh, digital product initiatives here. Um, and so, you know, we, we were fortunate. We had about a million users on the web between Matt, my run and Matt, my ride before, um, the iPhone launched. And then in 08, uh, in July, in the summer, um, we made a, pretty, you know, I'd say important decision and that we launched uh, iPhone apps um, in the App Store in July. And so we had two of the first hundred iPhone apps, which was, you know, really historic if you think about it. I mean, the the timing, people think it just kind of blew up and to the right. And that was during yeah. the financial crisis and there was a bunch of stuff going on. But 
Um, we got featured by AT&T in November 2008, and it really was up and to the right. Like they, we were on every major publication. Our app was on the iPhone. Um, you know, and so I, I don't want to say the rest is history, but we got really fortunate in terms of timing, you know, really focusing on consumer needs. Like we would we would do this thing where um, we would come in on Monday mornings and we would look through Zendesk or at the time we were using some other software for customer service. And mm. we'd pick off the three, the top three issues that were reported over the weekend and we'd summarize them. And then the teams would develop those that week. And then we'd release them before the end of the weekend and see what happens the next weekend. So we did that sort of consecutively for years. Um, and, you know, it, I mean, map my run still to this day is probably one of the top running communities. The map behind me is a map of all start locations in 2014, which is about 300 million workouts around the globe. Um, you know, and so timing was great with MapMy. Obviously, when Under Armour bought it, um, that was a big win for us. Validation, I always say, for an entrepreneur is when somebody says, here's what your company's worth. And you go through that process. And, you know, it was really great. And I loved working at Under Armour for three years and with, with Kevin Plank. Um you know, and, and at the end, it was a lot, I mean, it kind of relates to the story of Outside, which was that, you know, we had this huge connected fitness base. We had, you know, MyFitnessPal, we had Endemondo in Europe, we had MapMy, we had eight other companies that we had all put together, another product we had launched called Record. We had hardware with the, you know, Under Armour um, uh, hover platform. We had launched HealthBox in the hardware space um, with HTC. And, but I really felt like the big missing component was content. Like I was like, hey, we can have a much more vibrant base if we start really producing content. Mm. And unfortunately, at that time in 16, the company started, it was under a little bit of stress. And so, you know, basically I left, I had a non-compete for a couple of years. So I went to run a consumer genetics company, which is a whole nother story on its own. Mm. Also in the quantified space area, by the way, though, it was very parallel in many respects. Um but I really started thinking a lot about how would I get back into the category? How would I, how would I think about coming back in and doing something meaningful? Um, and, you know, we just got, you know, we, we started with the endurance brands like Velo News and Women's Running and Podium and Triathlete. And then we kind of stepped into some bigger assets with um, Active Interest Media with, you know, Ski Magazine and Backpacker and Yoga Journal and Clean Eating and, and you know, Warren Miller Films and, some other things. And then we, we, we bought Big Stone up in Carbondale that owned Rock and Ice and Trail Runner. Um, first non-media business was Finisher Picks, which was on the event photography side. And then, you know, I'd say we got lucky in that um, I had met Larry Burke. My mom lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and um, I had gone to lunch with him in 2019. And I'd sort of jokingly said to him, hey, you know, Larry, if you if you ever want to sell outside, you know, give me a call. And he called me a year later at, at Thanksgiving and he said, hey, we have uh, this TV network um, that's called Outside Television. Would you want to buy that? And I said, well, I, it, it's interesting, but I, I'm not really interested unless I own the brand. And he kind of scuffed at me a little bit and said, I'm not sure I'm ready to sell Outside Magazine. And then a week later, he called me back and said, look, you know, I'm 78 years old and I think I'm ready to get out of it. And so that was our sort of catalyst to to being able to acquire, um, you know, outside and Gaia GPS. And we did a whole bunch of other acquisitions like Athlete Reg and some other things at the same time. And then literally less than six months later, Pinkbike called me and said, you know, hey, there's a big, op you know, we've seen what you guys have done. Are you interested in putting Pinkbike and Trail Forks and Cycling Tips and the Pinkbike Marketplace all together? And so it just kind of all came together. I mean, I don't want to say it was, it was all perfectly thought out it wasn't um you know it was a it was there was a lot of serendipity and things that had to come together um you know and and obviously now obviously we have a big base of you know almost 80 million customers touch us monthly and mm. you know i think the the thing i worry most about is probably how to retain the authenticity of these deep verticals that you know we're in and I think a lot about it because I think about it as a user, as a cyclist, and how do I keep that authenticity without making it feel generic? Um, how do I keep developing the features on apps? Like, I love Trail Forks. Like, I mean, it was yeah. one of the reasons I was so excited to get it. Um, you know, I mountain bike and gravel a lot. And, you know, I would say that, um, you know, it's probably the second or third most highest app use I use on, you know, on my phone and, um, you know, so that, that like keeping those things and really developing those communities around those products is probably the thing that I think about the most. And maybe what I'm most concerned about as we continue to scale. 
Oh, awesome. Well, there's a couple of things you mentioned there that I want to go into. I want to talk a bit more about your time at Under Armour with Kevin and you mentioned quantified self. And honestly, one of the biggest conversations that we've had to date on this podcast is uh, what you said perfectly, which is how do you retain authenticity of these deep verticals post-acquisition? And I mean, there's a lot of fans of this pod that are subscribers and contributors to fastestknowntime.com, for example, which yeah. you acquired earlier this year. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to ask a couple of questions about connected fitness before we go on. Um, you know, we are what, 16, 17 years past the founding of Mount My Run. I think it's still the largest running community in the world to date. There's other companies now like Strava, which I know you've called the greatest training log of all time. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I give them more credit than that now, but I, I, I I think that they, you know, in some ways, um, well, I could give a whole bunch of analogies. I think what Michael and and Mark have built is amazing. And um, I'm a user and, you know, I think um, we, we look forward to more partnerships with them. Um, yeah. When I was at Matt, my, I would say I certainly had my um, moments of like wanting to be very competitive was maybe the right way, way, way to put it. Yeah. Um, but uh, I admire what they've built for sure. I guess my question here is, if you think about the movement as a whole, what what inning are we in? Like what figurative inning are we in? How much how much progress has been made? Like I know that that's a subjective question with a subjective answer, but you're right there. So what are your thoughts? Like how much progress has been made? Um, so what inning do I think we're in? So I would say it started before 2005. Um, I, mobile certainly 2008 was a huge catalyst for quantified self or what, you know, today is just called, you know, active lifestyle, you know, data or whatever you want to call it now. Um, you know, cause I, I go back to like the early nineties or the eighties, like I was literally writing stuff in books. And then when spreadsheets came out, I had everything in spreadsheets and, you know, I used to say at MapMy that our greatest competitor was Excel. Like, that's what people, like, we were trying to get people off of Excel for a yeah. long time, right? Um, so there was a stat, I think, that Apple gave um, on the, uh, the, the call, or it was maybe like in a post report that they estimate that 60% of the U.S. population will track some sort of health data um, by 2025. Right. So that's that, you know, this is watch adoption. It's, uh, you know, app adoption. It's um, moving from, you know, written down to being in the cloud type of data storage. Mm. Um, The thing that I think so interesting about the category is that it's one category, like I'm using example, how many golf rounds are tracked is like probably less than 5%. How many... um, you know, like when you think about the attendance of a sports game, so like, you know, I'm using example, like, um, you know, you're at the Broncos game or something, actually knowing the person that's in the seat that like the ticket wasn't resold or whatever is, you know, you don't have a hundred percent, maybe you got 50% of the audience that you actually know their email or whatever, but you don't know that much about them. You don't know, like, are they, do they play football outside? Do they play, do they run? Do they ride? Like, what do they do outside of, you know, going to the sporting event? Um, so I think what's interesting about our category is that so many people for what I would call the reward of visualization. So like seeing it in your training calendar or seeing it on a map is, a huge incentive or seeing the rings close on your Apple watch, right. Is a huge incentive. What I think that is missing is the true reward cycle. So like when you go do that thing, that there is an immediate benefit for doing it like airline miles or, um, American express points or, um, and I think there are some interesting companies coming into the category. It's something we think about a lot in terms of rewards, because I think that there are a lot of, like, take games as an example. Um, uh, there's a lot of embedded reward systems that are driving people to play those games. And I think that companies like Outside and other people in the space have to start thinking about how do we sort of, like, mono a mono with um, the things that are drawing people in that are, uh, I would argue, negative for them. Any screen time, to me, is um, not positive for our health, even doing this with you on this call, no offense, but like you're not helping my health right now by doing this, right? Um, so, you know, I think that's where I think we have to start using any framework and that's a little bit why we decided to get into Web3 a little bit. We're testing some things there. Um, 
I think we have to use all possible technology and services and word of mouth and community engagement and everything to create reward systems that compete with the dopamine response of TikTok or or Instagram or the video games that you play. Um, I mean, I watch my own three kids. I have a six, nine, and 11-year-old, and I'm frankly terrified. I'm terrified at how much I see these these screens pull them in. They don't have phones yet, even my 11-year-old, um, you know, but it's it's really, really, really challenging. I can see the dopamine response. I can see the way they act after they're on screens. And it's frankly terrifying, if you ask me. And I do want to have a very large conversation about screen time later in, in this episode. Um, yeah, no but worries. you said that what was missing there at least in our outdoor space, is the tr- is the quote-unquote true reward cycle. And we don't have the equivalent of uh, these American Express points and, and reward miles. Is this where the promise of NFTs can take over? Well, I don't, you know, I don't, I mean, it's sort of interesting watching, like, I don't know if you saw what um, Starbucks launched today, or I think it's called Odyssey, around mm-hmm. their rewards program. Um, and they're not even calling it NFTs. I, I think there's a little bit of negative connotation with NFTs, which I understand. You know, it's it's there's been, you know, variety of things happen in the space. But I think what's interesting is the future of rewards that are, um, you know, very, very dynamic. And, and I think that when you look at um, the gaming uh, platforms, they're looking very closely at Web3 because... When you have transferable assets that are collectible, that are um, real time, that are uh, you know they're they're tradable. In other words, there's like a market value for them, like a speculative market value for them. Yeah. Um, I would argue too. By the way, I think that American Express and um, most of the mileage programs will be on open public blockchains, so that you and I, through a smart contract, could decide to exchange miles. Like literally in real time, like I could be like, hey, Finn, I need your 100,000 miles for this trip that I want to take tomorrow. Mm. How much are you willing to sell them for? Same thing with American Express points. I think all of those things, because market dynamics um, and and frankly, the stock market and other types of um, instruments have proved this is that when you combine speculation with long term holders, there is a dynamic that's created on, when, from an open marketplace perspective. There's a dynamic that's created that's very unique. And sometimes there's bad stuff that happens, but sometimes there's really good stuff that happens. But most of all, there's price appreciation, which I think is very unique um, specifically to our category in the long run. So I don't really hinge on the word NFTs, but I think that the technology around Web3 is extremely interesting to build reward platforms that will motivate um, humans to do um, different things around incentives that are, uh, you know, sort of important to them. Okay, I cannot wait to talk about that. I'm going to bookmark it, um, but I got I got to ask you this because I am an e-commerce nerd, and I know sure. that one of your greatest contributions at Under Armour was the institution of these quote unquote microtransactions. So, for listeners that aren't familiar, uh, if you ran like a hundred miles on the map, my run out, for example you might in exchange get like 40% off some Under Armour shoes. And I've always been curious, where did this idea come from? Was there precedent for it? What prompted you to bring this to the table? Oh yeah, I mean, I I didn't invent that. Um, I would say we executed it pretty well, Um, not even as well as I wanted it to be. But, um, you know, I think when you looked at what Nike was doing, um, they had started to layer some of that stuff in Training Club and some other things. I think there's lots of models in e-commerce where there are what I call sort of incentive-driven models. So like I use a friend of mine, um, David uh, 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 um, Cravens at uh, Zoo Lily. Okay. He, um, you know, Daryl Cravens, sorry. Daryl um, put in this thing where like if you were at Zoo Lily a certain amount of times that you would get a discount. So like, you know, linking outdoor activity to a discount on Under Armour, like I said, wasn't really new. It was just in how we did it and how we executed it. And, and you know, what we saw was that if we went to purchase a customer, you know, like what I would call rent a customer from Facebook or Instagram, that customer might come to Under Armour's site two times a year and the average order value might be like 100 and 110 bucks. Um, yeah. 
when we when we did it to the connective fitness community we were seeing three times a year visits on average and we were seeing like cart average order values like you know could could be close to 200 bucks and so i think that that was where we realized that there was a lot of value in offering those microtransactions and keeping people on the platform longer um, you know, if you ask me, I mean, I think uh, if you listen to Amazon's earning call or like, I don't know if you saw this big deal this week with Paramount Plus and Walmart. Yeah. But I think all of these things are tied into, you know, like, you know, Amazon already has a huge amount of data from last year on Thursday night football watchers um, about what they converted into, you know, over time on Prime in terms of transactional amounts and, you know, what that audience is worth in terms of the spend that, I mean, you know, hundreds and hundreds of million dollars for Thursday night football, right? Mm. They've already made their money back on that. Um, so I think this idea that content or utilities or the, um, like, I, I think, let me put it this way. I believe that in the near future, every business will have a content and a, a, a you know larger larger investment in content that's linked directly to their commerce in one form or another how might this and i apologize if i've overlooked it but have you already started to experiment with this at outside yeah so we have something called the outside shop we we bought a small company called karen um I would say that um, our focus has been on the personalization layer related to content and you know, uh, again, acquiring more, you know, film, TV, um, you know, obviously premium written content, podcasts that we've been rolling out, um, as well as like how to link people into Gaia and Trail Forks as a benefit to Outside Plus. But in the long run, so we haven't done a ton of testing yet, but I would say in the long run, I'm a huge believer that um, whether we do that through partnership or we do it directly, I'm a huge believer that this is going to be a massive um, component of kind of how we think about the world and how we give rewards. Cause you know, my view is like, let me use an example. You, you, let's say you use trail forks for the next three months, um, every mountain bike ride you do. And then I'm sending you something that says like, you know, I could send you something simple, like here's 50% off or 50 bucks off of your next pink bike gear, you know, purchase, which is obviously we have a pink bike store and sell a fair amount of gear through pink bike. Um, that's a benefit to you, right? Immediately 50 bucks off just because you logged on Trail Forks, you were going to do that anyway. So if now all of a sudden I'm giving you $50 in value right away, that's a benefit. I think there are many partners that you'll see us do that with and other offers. Like, you know, you look at the Grubhub, um, you know, sort of like Uber Wars and you're seeing all these partners layer Grubhub and Uber into their, you know, their offerings. Um, that's all about linking the customer's sort of activity with, um, with you know, ultimately a transaction. Yeah. Well, I think from a media slash marketing company standpoint, in my opinion, one of the great questions of our time is uh, what is valuable enough to put a price tag on or should all content be ungated and, and free and should we just exalt like the flow of ideas? Um, and where I'm, where I'm going with this is if you if you do what you just described, which is building utility into consumption and mm -hmm. the promise of once you pay for this content, there's going to be other benefits down the road after you've consumed it. Is that maybe the play here? Um, well, I have a bunch of I have a bunch of you. I mean, this category is in some ways. Um, well, I would say all media in some ways is has been. Um, uh, what's the right word? I, I feel like, I mean, if you look at the media business overall, it's been under tremendous pressure the last 15 years. And, and really the last 10, even more so, is social media really has exploded, right? So let me use an example of like why I don't think all media should be free. L mm. Let me just give you an example, okay? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so we write, you know, we, we write a lot of gear reviews, like thousands and thousands of gear reviews a year. Um, you know, historically, before there was social media, those reviews were paid for by the advertising that the endemic partners, you know, the, 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 the specialized, the, you know, the SRAMs, the Shimanos of the world, right? Um, and, and while those, while those um, advertisers are still with us, they don't spend as much as they used to. And 
they still expect that those reviews are going to get written. In other words, like we're going to, every single time a bike comes in or a part comes in or a helmet comes in or whatever it is, that it's going to get a full review by the editorial staff, right? And the reality is, is that like, you know, whether you want to talk about it in cost per thousand impressions, or you want to talk about it in page rates for, you know, outside magazine full page ads, or you want to talk about it in any number of sort of vectors, the reality is, is that the income generated today from those reviews is significantly less than it was a decade ago, significantly, right? So, you know, the reality is, is that what's happened is, is so let me use an example. So, you know, we, the media, and I mean this very broadly, the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal to outside, have become reliant on posting the links in social media to drive traffic, right? Well, what happens is Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, they go to those those brands and they say, you don't need to buy advertising from outside. You can just get the traffic on our site from the links that have been posted up. And so you yeah. might see a specialized ad next to a link on Facebook, and that's where they're buying their media instead of buying it directly from us. That's one example. Another example is that, like, you know, I'm using example recently, somebody was like, why aren't you, why don't you have a team of people on the ground covering this very, very prominent uh, event, right, in the in the endurance space? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to have five people on the ground for every single event. I would love to. But the reality is our partners, when they spend money in social media to gain access to our audience, uh, are not funding us to be able to be on the ground basically doing that event right? Like to do the coverage. So we have to do it remote, very quickly, watching TV, whatever it might be. And so I think fundamentally, this is the, this is the problem that media has and, and, and outdoor media is no different. So one thing to be clear with your listeners, yeah, media does not support the cost of the outside business. We have got to think about membership. We have got to think about things like Trail Forks and Gaia subscribers as part of, you know, the outside plus membership. So make no mistake, what used to pay for all of the content that we produce is no longer uh, supporting that same amount of content to be produced, right? So we have very hard decisions to make in real time. And part of it is still being funded by what I'd call the consumer now, which is through the membership. So those memberships are incredibly important to us as yeah. part of our way to build and and storytell and talk about these things because, you know, what I call traditional di- digital media or print media or, you know, um, video media is not right now supporting um, the full cost of our uh, content that we develop. Yeah. So that's my 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 you my que- my answer to your question is. No, I do not think all media will be free. It seems to me that a lot of consumers had no problem in the Web2 world of of being the product, like being this captive audience for mm-hmm. advertisers to get in front of. I mean, there are, there are a lot of obvious exceptions that people saying, I hate that this is the case, but it seems like more people balk at the idea of having to pay, let's just say four bucks a month for a membership to all this premium content and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on why that's the case and how long it might take for there to be this uh, sort of crossing of the chasm where people just uh, take it as like, this is just something that we do now as, as, a, as a way to, uh, to get the content that we want. I think you're going to start seeing like, so one of the things I think is so material about Web3 is this sort of shift of like who owns your data. Like you own your data. And my view is that's the way the world should be. And that's one of the things I think is so intriguing. I think you're going to see a lot of like what I call micro gating. So like, you know, it could be you have to, you know, be, you know, own a certain um, asset, digital asset to get access to things. You might be able to do that on a per article basis or a per film basis. Think about it more like pay-per-view, right? Like, hey, you just want to watch the boxing match on Friday night. That's going to cost you X to get access to it versus like a membership where you kind of have this sort of continuum of like you're always paying even though you don't know if you're going to use it or not. 
and and by the way, I don't think advertising is ever going away. So the the, yeah. the point being is that I think it's going to be some mix of micro access, um, membership, and um, advertising. But I think that in the long run, the rebellion from the major tech platforms is going to be about data ownership and your right to pull it back easily. And, you know, that's something that we talk about as a team, uh, product teams talk about and stuff like I don't like let me use an example, even your trail forks data, I'm assuming your yeah. trail forks user, like I don't think I own it. I don't think I, I, I think I should be able to I, I have to always provide benefit to you to have access to it. Now, right now, technically, the terms of service say I own it. But I think in the long run, when we think about the development of the product, I think that um, it will be much more about you owning it and deciding when you either want to let me have access to it or not and the uses of access to it, if that makes sense. Mm. Well, one thing, and I, I want to make sure I don't forget to bring this up, but one of the things that I've admired about you and your team, and I know you've been very public about this, is and you actually you said it earlier in the conversation you're trying to build a business model that is not reliant on screen time which is a huge zag away from all these major tech platforms and you're trying to elevate the discussion so you're not trying to be reliant on uh, impressions and clickbaity titles and just generally shallow content um, but at the same time I mean I think earlier this year you know you I think you had to lay off 15 percent of the staff and is that an indictment against this optimistic vision of the future for outdoor media? Or are you confident that, um, that your vision is actually going to play out? Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, let's see. So the first thing I would say is that it was a very difficult, like, you know, I'm using example. I'm a 35 year subscriber of Vela News, literally. Like I've been getting it in my mail for 35 years. That's a long yeah. time. Yeah. Right. Um, it was a very, very hard decision to look at the dynamics of print. So let me just use a couple of factors that have happened over the last decade. You're talking about um, double-digit declines year-over-year year in subscribers to print magazines. You have um, a massive reduction in the page rate uh, pricing that we could charge advertisers. The third thing is, is that most of the vertical books, with the exception of Outside Magazine, i.e. we did not eliminate Outside Magazine to be 100% clear, but most of the vertical books, like Ski, Vela News, et cetera, were down. In most cases, they had less than 50% fill rates on advertising in them, right? And paper costs up 300%, as well as our commitment to sustainability, right? Mm -hmm. Like, don't get me wrong, like the most... The least sustainable thing that we were doing was sending out print magazines. Least, yeah. right? So when I layered all those factors in, as well as what was changing in the markets very rapidly, I would have liked more time to figure out if there was some way to keep or distribute print in a different way. But the reality is, is like, look at what's happening in the markets. Like, we just didn't have time. And so, you know, we had to make that incredibly hard decision, which impacted, you know, a, a fair number of the staff. And you know, I've had, you know, I mean, obviously some of our team understands, some of they, some of them don't, some of the industry people do, some of them don't. Mm. Um, you will never catch me on record. Um, you know, you have some people in the industry that have attacked me personally over it. You will never see me they do that to anyone in the outdoor industry because to me, mm. we need every single advocate of the outdoor industry to get people outside. Like, I'm never going to go after someone and be like, that's a terrible publication or why are they saying that or this? Because to me, that is just hurting our industry in and itself. So why would I do that? Why would I hurt somebody that's actually advocating for people spending time outdoors, right? Yeah. Um, whether or not the vision of creating this like almost hub for, you know, what I, I sort of, we, we've sort of rebranded it to inspire. So our first goal is to inspire you. The second part is to um, activate you. So like, how do I get you to an event? How do I get you on a trip? How do I get you using Trail Forks or Gaia so that you're actually out there doing it? And I can sort of create micro things for to want you to do that more. And then ultimately reward. And so can I say for sure right now, especially in the climate that we're in, and, and I would say the, the massive headwinds against media and businesses in general. This has nothing to do with the outdoor industry. This is like the climate that we're in. Can I say for sure that I think our vision will um, 
you know, make it to the ultimate point that I have in my head. No, I can't, I can't say that for sure today. What I'll, what, you know, what, what people on the podcast should know is I will do everything in my power to make sure that we get to that experience that I ultimately view. Um, I'm super excited. Our new app is coming out, which is an aggregation across the platform in, in Q4. We have some incredible things that are coming in Q1 that are sort of the next layer of it that I'm really excited about. Um, that is the, the first time you will see the culmination of my vision to begin with will likely be by the end of Q1 or early in Q2 of next year as we've brought all these pieces together. Do I know yet whether or not consumers are going to adopt that in mass? I, I don't know yet, but I have, a, I have a good track record in building things for consumers that a lot of people, i.e. the map behind me, have used. Um, and so I'm very hopeful that that will be the case as we roll this out. Well, it's interesting, and I, I don't know why I'm reminded of it in this moment, but it could have been because. By you the way, said I might have just uh, I might have just done that thing where I product release something on your show that no one knows about. So, you know, <laughs> we, you, <laughs> you, know we, can, you can highlight it that way later if you want. <laughs> right on. Well, hey, I, I should say this. Uh, you, I think it was you actually that made an interesting point that the way uh, Web two is set up as it stands today, a lot of these outdoor companies the North Face, Patagonia, anybody that advertises on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, et cetera, in essence, they're funding their own demise because they are contributing money to platforms that incentivize users to just stay on their screens and not to go buy that North Face jacket that would allow them to go ski for the day at, I'm looking at Alta outside in my yeah. hometown of Salt Lake City. Yeah. Um, it's and terrifying. Like, how, how do you pivot people? Like, how do you, how do you rally the industry? You know, incentive, it kind of goes back to like one of the reasons why I'm so intrigued by Web3 and the incentive layers that are there um, and the potential reward layers. But, you know, when you're, it's kind of like, you know, if you think about the spending, I don't want to get into politics, but if you think about like basically the budgets on both the Republican and the Democrat side, everybody's spending too much money. Like, let's just be clear. Like, why why do we have massive inflation? It's because we printed too much money and that money got spent and government spent it and we spent it and all of these things. But, you know, when you have incentives that are set up very short term, like in other words, like you are a leader at an outdoor company selling physical good. And you got to get that stuff sold in this quarter because your public announcement is going to be about how you did this quarter. You make trade-offs. And I don't, I don't like whenever I say this about these, like these companies, because by the way, I post links for stories on social media. I'm helping it too, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that there is a, um, like the, the draw, the incentive is very, very strong to do that because of how trackable, traceable everything it is. But I just think that companies in our space should realize that there is an inevitability here that is very concerning um, around everything from mental health to outdoor time to um, the, you know, the future of VR is incredibly scary to me. Like, you know, I got people emailing me every day, like, Hey, I have a really cool mountain bike experience in VR. Like you should, you, you guys should really talk about integrating this in your platform. And I'm thinking to myself, is that what I want? Is that what I want? Which is like you on a headset thinking that you're doing the, you know, like I was just at mountain bike worlds in, uh, uh Leger, which was incredible by the way. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, like, do I want someone to be thinking about recreating going down the, you know, downhill um, in VR and only doing that and not at getting on an actual mountain bike? That's not really what I want. So that that concerns me. And I think that companies in our space should be, they should be thinking about it. They should be concerned about it. But it, I understand that the balance is there's short, there's short-term needs and incentives that drive a lot of the decisions. I think this is a perfect place to finally come around to the screen time conversation. You've coined a phrase called the outer verse, which contrasts with the popular metaverse phrase in our tech world. And uh, I think you've already explained why, but uh, I guess talk about the distinction here. And uh, from a philosophical standpoint, maybe talk about uh, just what you're concerned about when it comes to the internet these days, VR included. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I there are some stats. Um, we have some partners, and you know, obviously, we're we're we 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 publish stories and and do research on this. But I mean, I'm I'm extremely concerned that you know, and again, my own sort of like real world experiences watching my own kids and and trying to always like push them to go outside and spend more time with their friends and you know things like that. And I I think that when you look at the you know the the minimum clinical requirement for outdoor time for, you know, sort of, you know, healthy lifestyle is 130 minutes, which to me seems ridiculously low to be clear in a week. Right. Um, but when you think about that, the average American kid is getting less than 60 minutes a week outdoors. That's frightening to me compared to when, when, when I was a kid and, and thinking about the benefits that I got from, you know, exploring the outdoors and being able to ride my bike anywhere. And, you know, so there's, there's like going back to the short-term incentives, when you think about COVID, everybody in the outdoor industry was talking about like, are there too many people in the outdoors? Like, look at our parks, they're all dirty and people don't know how to use the trails and, you know, all these things. And I go, that is a solvable problem. If there's no one on those trails, that's a totally different problem. Like, I would rather solve cleaning up the trails and having too many people on them. So during COVID, you know, obviously there was a big accelerant or what looked like a big, um, you know, sort of demand burst. Um, and I think with population growth, there's going to be a certain segment of our population that is thinking about outdoor time. But when you look at the overall health trends globally, and I think screen time is a major contributor to diabetes, you know, heart disease, all of these things. And I think eventually we will figure out the link. Um, I am downright terrified. And so when we were looking specifically at Web3, we were asking ourselves the questions of like, can we use this technology to create a different incentive, which is can we use it to unlock rewards for spending time outdoors and I think that everything you see that we'll be trying to do will be in that vein, you know, will be in trying to create world, real world experiences. Like I always use um, Niantic as an example um, with Pokemon Go and, and even what they're doing most recently with the NBA. Um, they're, they're creating this like outdoor engagement game from all the, all the um, uh, basketball courts, outdoor basketball courts in the U.S. And those are the types of things that I would like to see a lot more of. Like I love AR uh, because, you know, you can real use it in real world outdoor experiences. Um, you know, I, I mean, um, we, we're quite close with Zwift and Eric Men, and I'm, I'm, you know, while again, um, I would prefer people be outdoors. I do think there are benefits to, you know, the type of thing like the, the, the e-sport, like um, actual activity that, you know, they're creating and others in the category like Rovi and Wahoo and other people are doing. Um, but you know, like, again, the trends are all against this, like globally, it's not, it's not just in the U S it's, this is a, the dopamine response to you and I being on a screen and especially for younger generations is in my mind, um, worse than smoking. And I don't like uh, I, I'm, I'm going to try everything I can to do to try to get people to realize they should be outdoors, um, you know, in any fa any fashion. I, I frankly don't care if you're golfing. I don't care if you're walking around your front lawn with your shoes off. I'm just saying, like, time outdoors, in my opinion, is absolutely essential for your health. Well, and I'm trying to think of an example that this audience can latch on to. I know you've used the the Warren Miller ticket uh, in other conversations and maybe we can just replay that here. Uh, but can you talk about how in this outer verse world, when you're consuming, uh, something that outside offers to you, there are going to be downstream benefits that you get to enjoy three, six, nine, 12 months after the fact. Yeah. So, I mean, let's, since we're, you know, probably talking to a, a mountain bike audience. Um, let's, let's use like what I envision for trail forks in the long run as a good example. So, you know, my hope is that, um, soon, uh, we will have a way for, as you collect miles and do more miles in trail forks or e even certain trails or certain challenges that you might do, that those would unlock rewards that are only accessible to people that do more and more on the platform. And so we're connecting 
getting outdoors and doing real world, you know, in this case, mountain biking through trail forks or hiking or whatever you want to record in their Gaia, that it's specifically linked to unlocking some experience. Like maybe, um, I, I use a good example. So like one thing I would like to do is like, let's say our top, you know, uh, sort of producers or people that are riding the most in trail forks, maybe there are different unlock levels. Like maybe the people that are, you know, logging a hundred plus rides a year get entered into going to world mountain bike, uh, with our editors and, and having a really in-depth experience around seeing the best of the best, you know, participate in mountain biking, or maybe there's like an, a really amazing trip to Cape Epic with a group of, um, you know, elite athletes that are like your domestiques for the week for Cape Epic because of that, you know, like those are the things I'd like to see, but also like for the person that logs the first ride on trail forks, like maybe after you, after you do your first 10 miles it unlocks something that triggers like you getting a really cool discount on a, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, a new bag or, uh, or, or pink bike product or whatever it is. And then that makes you want to go ride the next 10 miles because that might unlock something else. So I see it all the way from, the people that are doing the most to the people that are just entering that life cycle and really trying direct rewards to something that would be meaningful to them, um, you know, in the space. And, and, and again, I see it very much like a little bit like, you know, American express rewards or United miles or something where you're going into kind of like a store and you get to pick from things that might be meaningful to you over time. It could be partners, it could be experiences, it could be, you know, other things. And I think, that's really the future that I see around every single thing that is about um, really linked to, you know, people spending time outdoors or doing the activity that they love. Because I think the counter cycle that is, if you think about a young kid, if they're getting massive rewards in the next gaming experience, Fortnite or whatever, what happens if they decide to play Fortnite all the time instead of go for a mountain bike ride? So I think we have to create parallel experiences not just for the the riders of today, but the the future generation of riders, and that's what I would just say that we're going to be focusing a lot on here at Outside. Mm. Well, I know we are coming up on the top of the hour, and I want to be respectful of your time, so I just have two more questions for you. Uh, the first, I'll preface with a comment. It seems to me like we're when you think about bundling versus unbundling of products and services, it seems like we're in this period of bundling in the outdoor mm -hmm. media space. Uh, you, you know, you just recently acquired fastestknowntime.com, Lola Digital Media just acquired I Run Far. The reason I bring those two up is there are a lot of people in our community, right or wrong, they have very strong anti-authoritarian streaks, anti-commercialization streaks. When you acquire those companies, uh, what steps do you take to preserve the quality and the trust and the authenticity that these brands developed over the years with those audiences? Yeah, I mean, first I would say that there's always gonna be some level of change. I mean, the way that I've thought about, you know, I mean, I was part of a lot of acquisitions at Reuters in the sort of financial services space, and they also had communities around them. Um, you know, the, the um, certainly with Under Armour, we did a fair amount of M&A, and, you know, we were like really trying to preserve the MyFitnessPal community and that that audience that was there, or the end of Mondo audience that was in Europe. Um, fundamentally, I think you will always lose some part of the base that just doesn't believe you're going to take care of the product. And as they see some degradation, or, you know, maybe it's in our case with content, it's maybe there's an editor that leaves and they're like, but I loved that person. Like, where do they go and what are they going to do now? I think you're going to have some of that. What I think ultimately you have to do is you have to build a product for them in terms of like developing on top of what's there that was better than what they had before. That That's sort of step one. I think if you start to build that and, you know, I understand right now, like we haven't introduced that product to our audience. So there's a lot of questions about like, what is that going to look like? I think when people see this new product that's coming, I think they'll be like, wow, like this is a big change. Like this is something that I really value in terms of aggregating, like think about it like, you know, Apple News or, you know, a really refined, personalized, um, you know, feed for you that, you know, brings all these pieces together and helps you discover new things. 
Um, I, so I have to, I, you have to, you have to invest and develop in the product so that they're getting more out of it than maybe they were before. And then secondarily, something that we have, I, I would say, have tried hard to do is invest in the teams. I mean, um, almost everybody um, across the organization um, we've invested in, you know, their their salaries and bonuses and benefits. And, you know, that to me is something that when you're smaller, it's it's harder to do. Um, you know, we, we, we have obviously, you know, have had capital from, you know, the venture world that's allowed us to support, you know, those individuals and, and hopefully help them grow. Um, but I would say that it does not come without growing pains. Like there's no, there's no way that I could sit here and, you know, I, Kevin Plank used to use this statement that I loved, which is trust is earned in drops and lost in buckets. And I think that, you know, right now, um, you know, we've spilled some buckets certainly as we've gone along in the process, but we hope we're adding some drops in and, over time, we'll add more drops, then we'll spill the buckets. Last question I have for you. It's probably a little bit self-serving because uh, I probably stand to benefit to some degree. But in this era where, at least in my opinion, it's never been easier for an individual to build an audience, what are the incentives uh, that that you're kind of putting in front of people like myself to recruit, to create on the outside platform? And maybe we can talk about this in the context of like this creator marketplace you've talked about in uh, previous interviews. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have a network of, I mean, tens of thousands of freelance writers across the platform that we, you know, we pay and, you know, we've we've committed to to paying on time and which not necessarily did the previous owners do in many of these cases, um, you know, um, and I still think that model is is far from perfect, and what I mean by that is that um, I think that um, we should be a platform where uh, you are getting your voice in front of the people that are most relevant to your audience, and that you get to keep the majority of that revenue. But the exchanges that you also don't have to go out like the portion of revenue we would keep. Let's say it's you know ten fifteen percent. The portion of revenue we keep is solely because we are giving you an audience that normally you'd have to buy or sort of develop on your own, right? And then we're marketing that over time and giving you access to a bigger platform. So I think when you look at the Substacks and the Patreons and others of the world, I think that that is the move that um, in in a new marketplace framework, we will eventually get to. I, to be clear, market conditions, investment cycles, all of these things make a big impact on that because of the capital that you need to be able to do that. But I would say my ultimate goal is to become more of a platform that puts you in front of the right audience in the outdoor category and has you taking the majority of the revenue home rather than it being like a flat relationship where I pay you a certain amount for an article or a podcast or whatever it is. Um, Again, will it happen overnight? No, but that is certainly the long-term ambition. Awesome. Well, Robin, I cannot thank you enough for your time. I I know that the listeners will enjoy this conversation. I'll make sure to link to all of the relevant social media and initiatives that you have going on at Outside. Thank you. Uh, But before we go, are there any calls to action that you have for the audience? Well, I won't, I can't leave without saying, you know, the Outside Plus bundle, I think is, is really the magic that we put together. So, you know, certainly would appreciate the support from people on that front. Um, You can find that at any one of the sites and you know obviously if you're out there mountain biking um love the support for trail forks as it's uh you know it's to me one of the shining stars that we have and and we want to put more resources there so appreciate the support the community has for paying for that 